Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 103rd show, so I thank all of you from around the world who participate. Today's guest is Frank Cepedes, author of Sales Management That Works. It's a fabulous book, especially when you're trying to grow sales in this very chaotic time. And Frank, uh, welcome. Mark, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure to be with you, and thanks for hosting me. Well, Frank, let's start with with you talking about your background and uh, the businesses that, the business that you're in. Well, my my background is not uh, particularly exotic. I got my uh, doctorate, uh, started uh, teaching at Harvard Business School. I was a marketing uh, professor, made my way up the hierarchy, and then after ten years, I left with some others. Uh, we started a business, a professional. Uh, services firm. We grew that business uh, and got lucky. I I could spin this a different way, but it was dumb luck. Uh, We exited at exactly the right time. Harvard called me up and said, how'd you like to come back and teach? Uh, My research when I was a a professor always had to do with companies go to markets But then when you run a business, as you know, Mark, and you've got to meet payroll every month, uh, you develop a new appreciation for sales. So that was uh, that was part of my motivation. And why did you write this book and select this particular title? Um, It's a fair question, uh, because it's not like the world is uh, waiting breathlessly uh, for another (laughs) book about uh, sales. Uh, In fact, If you go to Amazon, to the book section, and uh, in keywords, put in sales, out will come over 80,000 items. Wow. As far as as I can tell, the only management topic that gets more SKUs at Amazon is, quote, leadership. Gets about 90,000, but sales is a a close second. Uh, I had two motivations in writing the book. Uh, The first one is fundamentally a uh, professional, intellectual motivation. Of all the functions in business, sales is by far the most context-specific. Selling software is different than selling capital goods is different than selling professional services. Selling in North America is different than selling in Latin America, the Middle East, or Asia. And yet, for some reason, sales is also that business topic where people feel very comfortable making huge generalizations that are usually unsupported by any data whatsoever beyond what in academia we would call N equals one. When I sold for Google, I did it this way, so should you. When we invested in PayPal, you know, that kind of thing. And so, you know, someone who's done, I think, reasonable research about this topic for almost 30 years, who's run a business, who has sold, 
I wanted to write a book that says this is what research does and does not tell you about this core activity. And my second motivation is I think it's a good time for a book like that. There is no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, that online technologies, the data revolution that will continue throughout our lifetimes, no doubt they are affecting buying and selling. But my reading of what people say about this is that they, they simply misunderstand the managerial implications and business development realities. And, you know, I wanted to write a book that sort of says, hey, this, you know, don't, don't believe a lot of the conventional wisdom you're hearing these days. And um, how has Zoom and technologies, you know, really, how has the pandemic changed selling today? Because I hear a lot of people saying they're not getting on, still not getting on planes, still not going in person, and still not even going back to the office. So how has all this changed? Well, I mean, a, a couple of things. I think fundamentally what the pandemic has done is accelerate trends that were already in place before COVID hit uh, the world. And the most important thing about technology is and always has been the, its impact on buying. And that's the big deal. What, what the, what the uh, pandemic has done is accelerated the trend toward omni-channel buying. Now that does not mean, and this is where, you know, here's my advice to your listeners. And I mean this literally, I don't mean this just rhetorically. If I were listening about this topic, I would apply a very high discount factor to most. And by most, I mean over 90% of the so-called new normal predictions that you're hearing about the impact of the pandemic. They're pure speculation and unsupported by the data. But the pandemic has accelerated that trend toward omni-channel buying. Now, let me give you an example, all right? An example, both of the, um, why I say a lot of these new normal predictions are nonsense and where I think the real impact is. Um, let's look at uh, e-commerce, online buying um, as a percentage of retail sales. We have good data uh, about that. What was that percentage just before the pandemic, right? End of 2019. The answer is about 11.5%. When I ask executives, what do you think that number was? I typically get estimates from 30 to 60%. In other words, executives are not a little bit out of touch with buying realities. They're orders of magnitude out of touch. Then you ask yourself, what happened during the pandemic? Here, the most relevant data is the second quarter of 2020, because that was thus far, you know, let's hope it doesn't get worse, that was thus far maximum lockdown conditions in the United States. Now, obviously, when stores are held to 25 or 50% of their capacity, when people legitimately feel that if they go into a store, they may catch a virus and die, obviously there's gonna be more buying and selling that occurs online. What was the percentage of e-commerce as a percentage of retail sales? Q2 of 2020. 15 and a half percent. In other words, even in those conditions, it went up 
5%. It's been trending down every quarter since. Wow. Q4 of 2022, down to less than 13%. By the way, same thing is true, work from home. Spiked up to about 40% second quarter of 2020, now down to 18% uh, only a year later. And many of those people are gig workers who have always, quote, worked from home. Now, does this mean that the internet is not a big deal? No. What it does mean is it's not a digital eats physical world. It's an omni-channel buying world that requires a multi-channel response. And that's a big deal. That's what my book is about. It's about how this affects all the core areas of sales management. Um, we have a question from the audience. Um, Frank, would you consider the term business development to mean sales? I, I, it certainly includes sales, but you know, part of my uh, point of view about this topic is that um, sales, and by sales, I mean profitable sales, customer acquisition and retention, is always an organizational outcome. It depends on other things beyond, but certainly including, the street smarts, the skills of the salesperson, product, price, et cetera. That's what I mean by business development. And it's companies that ultimately sell, not only salespeople. You wrote that moving sequentially through a funnel isn't happening anymore, but buyers are now work through parallel activity streams. You started to talk about this. Can you explain further? Yeah, uh, and, and it's really what I mean by the omni-channel buying. And I'm going to get academic uh, with the audience just for a moment, but, but bear with me because I, I think it makes the point. For over 60 years, the way buying has been conceptualized, and as a result, the way selling is talked about is in terms of what academics call a hierarchy of effects model. And what they mean by that is that the job is to move the prospect sequentially from awareness to interest, to desire, to action, to close. A-I-D-A, AIDA, as in the, uh, uh, the Verdi opera. And by the way, that, that um, uh, look at buying and selling is built into virtually every bit of CRM software that is out there. But I think, you know, what the research tells us, and I think some reflection on your own experience tells you, that's just not the way buying works by the third decade of the 21st century in most categories. Buyers are online and offline dealing with influencers, buying forums and B2B, et cetera, multiple times during their buying journey. It's not a pipeline. It's not a funnel, it's a series of streams. And one of the issues in sales is understanding that and knowing when the salesperson is in the best position to interact with the prospect. So that, that's what I mean by that. We understand how this happens in consumer buying, right? You go to your phone, same thing goes on in B2B in multiple areas. This does not mean the disappearance of the salesperson. Number of salespeople in the United States have increased consistently throughout the 21st century. 
even as the internet has expanded in scope, bandwidth, etc. But it does mean that selling changes dramatically because the buyer now shows up already with product comparisons, price information, etc. That's why it's a big deal. I think it's a godsend, the internet, when you go to buy and you're able to go and, and check the uh, pricing out, you know, and especially either online or in person. I, I saw something on Facebook ad and I used to buy direct from those ads, but now I go and check those ads against Amazon and see if the price is different. And oftentimes I find that the price is 15, 20% more than I saw it on Facebook. Yeah, but I I would make a distinction here. I I agree with what you just said. And Amazon is a good example. I think Amazon's an excellent buying experience if you know what you want. But it's a horrible shopping experience. Uh, And by the way, this is a big deal. It's a big deal because, as I said earlier, information is only increasing. Access is only increasing. There is a role, and you see this happening in multiple categories, There is a role for curation. That's one of the key tasks most salespeople play. Um, How are technologies like artificial intelligence affecting the way companies sell and buyers purchase? Yeah. Um, uh, I'm going to get a little snarky for a bit, Mark, but, uh, you know, the phrase artificial intelligence, (laughs) you know, it's a little bit like these other phrases, digital transformation, you know, leadership. You can drive a truck through those that phrase. You know, I sit on boards. I work with, you know, boards of advisors and other things with lots of startups. And one I work with is a so-called AI firm, but the CIO is my kind of CIO, you know, low BS. And I like the way he phrases it. He says, listen, when I talk to investors and clients, I talk about artificial intelligence. When I talk to my people, I talk about correlations, right? Uh Um, Now, I think artificial intelligence, what we typically mean by that, you know, once we get beyond the sloganeering and the, um, you know, let's use the phrase to raise money sort of thing. What we typically mean is that we're somehow using data analytics to make some predictive, um, add some predictive capabilities uh, to what we're doing. Now, I think there are a couple of things to be said about that in sales. One is I get back to the basics. Sales is very context specific. You'll find, I think, that most of those predictive analytics work well. This is why SaaS businesses are always, almost always the examples. They work well when the nature of the buying in the category is repetitive. There's a cadence right? I got to get the household goods, whatever. They mer- they work much less well when that is not true. When buying is episodic, you're either in the market or you're out of the market, consumer durables, etc. I think the real value of a lot of these analytics is not so much in predicting the buying, because that's affected by so many exogenous variables the company doesn't control, but it helps in dealing with the ability to increase productivity in your sales model, knowing where we need our best and most expensive people and where we don't, knowing when we need people as opposed to an algorithm 
can do that. So again, I, I think uh, it's like most things in business. Uh, this is what I teach. I, I, this is the way I ran my business very profitably. If you can't bring a big phrase down to earth and explain how it affects how you would or wouldn't allocate resources, you know, my, my attitude is save that for Davos, you know, save it for places where, you know, go make it a TED talk, areas where nobody allocates any resources. <laughs> That's true. How are salespeople being trained today that is different than it was in the past? Well, you know, part of um, what you'll read in my book is that, uh, unfortunately, it's not that different. Uh, you know, the, um, the data here is, is, I think, you know, very, very telling. The reality is companies spend 20% more per capita, per person, on training and sales than they do in any other business function. But the ROI of that training is notoriously disappointing. And there are systemic reasons for that, right? Most sales training is episodic, right? You, you bring people in when you're introducing a new product. And what the learning people call the forgetting curve is very, very steep. And the research about this is pretty darn good. Most salespeople forget 80% of what they learned in a training seminar within 90 days. I mean, that's a good, uh, you know, it's a good example of short-termism, right? One quarter. Um, most training ignores the way adults learn, right? Salespeople are not studying for the final exam in my course. That's not, that's not part of their learning experience. They pay attention to information when and where they need it, which is usually on the way to making a call or during the actual conversation itself. Now, this is where I think the, um, the state-of-the-art companies with sales training are um, um, uh, making strides. This is where technology is and should be the seller's friend. There are now lots of technologies that, by the way, are coming down in price, God bless capitalism, because of competition, there are lots of sales enablement technologies that allow you to do that just-in-time learning, which is so important in sales. And you know the companies I'm, I'm thinking about, Showpad, Gong, Docsend, et cetera. But like any tool, it's only as good as the user. You still have to understand your buyer and how they buy today, not yesterday. And you still have to have the data that tells you when in that stream of buying, my salespeople can exert the most influence. But if you know the answers to those questions and keep the answers relevant, technology can help you make the training better. But I'm now talking, and I want to be very clear about this. In my experience, and my experience here is pretty good. You know, once upon a time, I looked uh, like Jimi Hendrix, Mark. Now <laughs> uh, I'm talking about like, 10% of the companies out there. The other 80 to 90% are still doing training the way they did it 10, 20, 30 years ago. And they're not getting the results that are available to them. Well, I think the uh, folks are closed off to a constant improvement and they feel like it worked that way uh, 10, 20 years ago. It'll still work that way, even though 
the world is changing and they're not adapting? Well, I think that's one reason. I mean, I think, you know, that um, that closed-mindedness is, is always part of it. But I think we have to be very, very clear about this. Um, sales is always a tough place <clears throat> to institute change in an organization. And the reason is fundamental, systemic, as we would say today. So many other decisions, so many other resource allocations in any company depend on sales forecasts and the ability of the sales force to make those forecasts. As a result, the metrics in sales tend to reinforce, you know, I want you to make sure you make the numbers next week, next month, next quarter. And as a result, change is tough because if you're in sales, because of your metrics, because of what you hear from your other colleagues, you stick with the devil you know, even as buying changes. That's how companies get disrupted, but it's built into the function. And if you don't recognize that, you know, you're, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna do what most digital transformation projects are currently doing. They're basically task forces. Um, a question from the audience. Does the salesman have to be an advisor of choices available uh, to prospects? I think this relates to another question he asked, which is what is curation in this context? Products and prices, uh, a cliche analogy, but progressive shows the prices of other insurers. So what's your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, why does progressive do that? It does that because generally speaking, progressive is saying, guess what? You get better coverage for less money from us. I don't think the job of the salesperson is uh, to persuade the buyer uh, to um, buy someone else's product. I don't think that's a good idea, all right? Um, I also think if you get back to what I said earlier, there's a sense, and I mean this respectfully, but there's a sense in which the question is academic. Most buyers now do have access to those product and price comparisons. They're, they're very easy. And especially in B2B categories, you have more and more buyer forums where you not only get access to product and price comparisons, you can talk to other people that bought the product and they can tell you what works, what doesn't, are there claims about service relevant, etc. Where I think the curation comes in and this, you know, sounds old school, but, you know, the most important things in business are easy to say and hard to do. It's still about selling solutions and outcomes. It's still about understanding that buyer, their context, what ROI means for them, not for some platonic ideal. You know, it's like what I tell startups. Very rarely do you meet an entrepreneur who hasn't identified a big opportunity, a big market. But my advice is always the same. Always remember, a market in the history of business since the Phoenicians, a market has never bought anything. Only customers buy. And that's where the curation comes in. But uh, if I can be blunt about this, I wouldn't feel sorry for buyers. As a general rule, what technology has done is empowered buyers at the expense of sellers. So, you know, it's it's not a level playing field, but again, that's that's part of why capitalism adds so much value. 
Yeah. My dad would miss the, my dad used to love to negotiate for cars, um, fight with them, walk out, stomp out, come back. And now this takes all the fun out of it for him because pretty much every, you know, when you go to a car dealer, they go, Hey, let's take a look. You want that Ford escape? Let's see who's selling it in the 50 mile radius. We can beat that price. Not much to negotiate after that. Either you want yeah. that car or not. And, yeah. and those guys have, have taken out because all they care about is let's just close their sales quicker. Well, car buying is actually, you know, and as you know, you, you, your interviewer actually reads the books. Uh, God yeah. bless. Uh, but, you know, there's that data in the book about this. And it's a very good example. And by the way, the data has held up during the pandemic. The reality now in the United States, the average car buyer spends almost 14 hours online researching the product. You go to edmunds.com. Oh, yeah. Right. But over 95 percent of cars are still bought in the dealership. But anybody, your dad is the exception. Your dad actually liked the Persian rug bazaar. Yeah, he did. But anybody who's bought a car in the United States, you know, starting 20 years ago, realizes it's a much, much nicer process now, not because the dealers have gone to Bible school, but because of what technology has done to empower the buyer and their information. I I think so. I always tell my students, uh, nobody ever sells you anything. You sell yourself because when you go to that uh, car uh, car salesman, he's now just asking you to tell him exactly what's the profile of what you're looking to buy, and then narrows down the choices, and then gives you the insights into the choices you're thinking about. But essentially, you've already walked in wanting to buy this car, and now he's just being an advisor consultant to you to figure out what's the best match. Um, I think, yeah. What skill sets do salespeople have to develop to succeed today? Well, um, you know, the basics always count, all right? And by the basics, I mean doing your homework, um, active listening, uh, et cetera. But, um, and what I'm about to say, you should expect. You should expect in any competitive activity and in a free market, business in general and selling in particular are competitive activities. What you should expect is that over time, the bar is rising. Why is that? You know, when I when I say what I'm about to say, you know, many of our listeners may say, duh, of course, but it's astounding to me how many companies forget this. If you're in business, you don't compete with companies that have gone out of business, right? They're dead. You only compete with the survivors in an industry. And in order to survive, you've got to adopt best practices. That's why the bar keeps rising. And if you look at selling in particular, and again, there's data in the book about this, what you'll find is that the skills that were considered, you know, state of the art 10, 15 years ago, the ability to develop leads, etc., are now much lower down on the list. And other skills, data analytics, the ability to navigate across boundaries in your own company, because it's more of a cross-functional activity, et cetera, they're much higher on the list. Now, why is that? Does that mean that listening and the basics you know, don't count? No. The way to interpret that data 
is in keeping with the old joke that many of our listeners uh, may know. You know, the joke about the two men who are out hunting, they, they shoot a bear, but only wound it. The enraged bear starts to chase them. As they're running, one guy says, hey, we're not going to outrun the bear. The other guy <laughs> says, all I got to do is outrun you. Right. That's, that's competition. Competitive advantage in business is always relative advantage. Those skills are now table stakes, and it's the others that make a difference. Um, I'll, I'll give advice to any sales managers who may be uh, listening, because I see this on the boards that I sit on. But what is what the data revolution is doing in many, many companies, if you look at the data analytics groups in many companies, and by many, I mean more than 50%, according to the research, those groups don't, don't um, report up through sales or marketing or what we now call the chief revenue officer, right? They report up through the finance function. And finance people, as I'm sure you've discovered, are annoying. Once they get data, they start to ask questions. Well, why do you spend the money this way? What is your cost to serve different segments? Yeah, I understand what you're telling me about the top line, but the way we accrete enterprise value is by maximizing return on invested capital. How do you do that? The point I want to make is that it's not only selling competencies that are changing, but sales management competencies as well. If you're less than 40 years old and you're gonna make a career in sales, the requirements for financial literacy in that function are increasing dramatically. Make sure you're comfortable with that language because it is, it, it's going to affect your promotional uh, opportunities. You know, uh, Frank, you're totally right. I write a lot of business plans and put together a lot of financial models and I'm doing it for two clients right now. And a, a lot of entrepreneurs are not able to explain their own math. Uh, about their business. They can't explain how they arrived at this number. You know, this idea of giving, we're going to get 10% of the market doesn't fly with anybody. They got to show step-by-step step about how you're actually going to get those sales and, and what's that going to cost for customer acquisition costs. Yeah. And well, we really and need even, to understand the detail. Yeah, no, I agree. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Some of our listeners may laugh at this, but this is real. You know, as I say, I, I do a fair amount of work with startups, VC firms, private equity. Uh, I was at a, um, a meeting about two months ago. Uh, this was a tech software entrepreneur, and they were pitching us. And what they were pitching was a metric called EBITDA MA. I hadn't heard of that. What it is, is this is what our profitability would be if you took out our sales and marketing expenses, which, by the way, we're running at about 65% of sales. One of the VCs, I thought, asked a good question. He said, are you telling me that if you were eight feet tall, you could play in the NBA? <laughs> this entrepreneur with no irony said, yes. And the VC said the right thing. He said, but you're not eight feet tall. So, you know, this is, this is increasingly an important part, as it should be, of doing business. How much should you budget to train salespeople? And what has changed when training today's sales professionals? 
Uh, there's no one number for this. Um, uh, it, uh, you know, it's going to vary uh, company by company, but I'll say two things um, about this topic. One qualitative, the other more quantitative. The qualitative comment, uh, you know, I, I teach at Harvard Business School. I have off and on uh, for 30 years. And, you know, we write case studies. And, and yeah, I that's thank what Harvard you're for that. All right. That's how I really learned about business beyond all the models uh, that I studied uh, in graduate school. One of the very first cases I ever wrote, an executive said something to me that um, I later found had a tremendous amount of truth. And he said, Frank, watch what you're going to see in your career. Most companies maintain their equipment better than they maintain their people. And he's right about that. And his point was that ultimately, if you don't invest in this sort of thing, you will get what you don't pay for, all right? And that's what happens. Now, the quantitative data is this. Um, we're living right now uh, because of uh, the pandemic, government policies, and other things. It's obviously what we call the war for talent is obviously raging, right? But here's the data about sales. And, and um, absent a pandemic, it's actually remarkably consistent for decades. Sales turnover in the United States tends to vary between 20 and 30% annually. It's higher in conditions like the current environment where people with talent have more options. It's lower when the economy is in a recession or whatever, but it tends to vary from 20 to 30%. Now think about what that means. What it means is that for the vast majority of companies, you've got to hire, train, socialize the equivalent of the entire sales force in your company every three to five years. There's no one number, but this, you know, this is not the kind of activity where you do it once and, you know, then as they say in New York, forget about it. No, yeah. this is a perennial cycle. And if you can make incremental improvements in that process, that's, you know, that number for the 20 to 30% in many companies, the amount of money they spend on hiring, training, development, et cetera, is bigger than the number for their biggest CapEx projects. So it's worth paying attention to. A question from the audience. How should universities sales programs change based on your findings, would they be up to the new challenges? Yeah, great question. And um, what I'm about to say may sound contradictory, but I don't think so. so. So first bear with me. You know, the question says, how should university programs change? Well, the first thing to be said about universities and sales is men, most of them don't have any programs, right? Um, of the nearly 5,000 colleges and universities in the United States, last time I looked, which was about three years ago when I started uh, this book, less than 300 even offered a sales course, let alone a sales program, right? In other words, this is a line of work where the vast majority of people start out knowing very little about what they're going to get paid for. Now, the question then becomes, 
what should universities do about this? There are lots of reasons universities have trouble with the topic of sales. It's inherently a cross-disciplinary topic. If you want to do it well, you got to know something about economics. You got to certainly know something about marketing and buying. You got to know something about psychology and persuasion. You know, what's one of the very best books ever written about sales? Not written by a salesperson. It was written by Bob Cialdini at the University of Arizona. His great classic book on persuasion. Universities are not set up for that kind of cross-functional work. And secondly, if you take seriously, as I think you must, what I said at the beginning of our discussion, Mark, sales is very context specific. The danger with universities doing this is, you know, what we say quite legitimately about the military. The generals are always fighting the last war. Yeah, right. 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 So I think, you know, watch what you wish for here. And fundamentally, if you're going to teach this uh, to undergraduates, uh, focus on the basics. And I mean the basic basics, because the world is going to change and sales is always at the coalface for those changes. I have to tell you, the beauty of schools like Harvard and Wharton, because uh, I taught at Wharton, is that the professors are still in the mix that they're actually still working in the real world, working with these companies, whether advisors, consultants, or their investors in these startups. And many of the schools I've worked at and other universities, the professors have been so far removed uh, from what's actually happening that they're like those generals, not only teaching from the last war, but maybe two, three wars ago, and they're well, too removed. Mark. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> That's just true. I'd like to think that what you said is true generally. I don't know. I just don't know. Yeah, I, that's been my experience at schools like yours or Wharton's. You write about the importance of product demonstrations and sales presentations. Is there a difference in terms of success rate in person versus virtual? Uh, I am not familiar with data that tells us, um, you know, that answers uh, the, the question that you're raising. And it's a good question because if you, you know, uh, uh, if you believe a lot of what you're hearing about um, uh, buyers don't want to deal face-to-face, -face, et cetera, this has become important. But let me give you my point of view about this. Uh, and my data here is as good as anyone else's because they don't have much data I've got some, but I don't, I don't want to say it's conclusive. I think that what we learn in general from the history of technology and what we learn by looking at sales in the 21st century is that it is not a digital eats physical world. That is simply not true. I showed you the data, you know, mentioned the data earlier about, uh, about e-commerce. But it is an omni-channel world. It is a hybrid world. I think the reality for most companies is not that, you know, an algorithm or um, uh, the website is going to replace the salesperson. I just don't, I, that's not true for most companies. But their challenge, and it's a big challenge if you get back to what I said earlier about why change is difficult here, their challenge is taking sales models that for good reasons have always been fairly labor-intensive account-based models and 
integrating into them the productivity improvements that online and digital can provide. And here I think the pandemic has been a wake-up call for many companies, not because it demonstrated to them that they don't need salespeople, all right? Uh, you know, you, you still see the pure play direct-to-commerce firms opening stores. Why, why would they spend money on that unless, you know, they, they had uh, uh, buying evidence? But what the pandemic has demonstrated to many companies is that, in effect, they were overpaying for many tasks in their sales models. We don't need our, you know, $150,000 enterprise reps doing lead generation, not the best use of their time. We can do that in a SaaS model with kids right out of college, or we can often do it through some inbound marketing, et cetera. We don't need to have every meeting in person. There are demos you can do online. That's what I mean by the hybrid model. I think that's where most companies need to be focusing. Technology is typically a complement to what is going on, not a substitute. And again, you know, all I can say is look at the evidence in the book. I think sales is exhibit A when it comes to that sort of thing. What are the top three to five activities based on your research that influence buying decisions? Product, price, budget, the basics, all right? Uh, what's the product? What's it going to do? What's the price? Do I have a budget uh, to buy this? So I think, you know, never lose sight of that. And that's part of what any salesperson uh, has to understand because, you know, as I said earlier, markets don't buy, uh, only customers do. But that would still be at the top of my list. Now, I'm saying that because I think it gets at a fundamental truth about business that many people and, frankly, many sales managers forget. Profitable sales, profitable growth in a company is ultimately an organizational outcome. It depends on our product, our price. Do we or don't we? have a coherent business strategy, as well as the way we manage sales. And many companies, I think, make a fundamental mistake. They believe that even a, you know, an effective sales model, an efficient sales model, can substitute for an incoherent business strategy. And it can't. So uh, my answer to your question is, remember the basics here uh, persuasion takes place once you've got the basics in place, not instead of the basics. When I was entering the workforce, uh, and I hate to say this <laughs> back in the 80s, uh, the ads for salespeople always mentioned the employer's interest in people with a sports background. Remember those ads? They always said, yep. you know, did you play high school or college sports? Is that still the case? And what does the profile of a potentially great sales professional look like? Yeah. Um, I, yes, you still hear that uh, a lot. I think um, here's my take uh, on this. You hear that because the uh, sports metaphor for the person who's using it is typically meant as a surrogate for two other qualities. Uh, one is, hey, they, they've got grit, as we would now say, persistence. You know, they get tackled 
they get back up on their feet. Obviously, that's important in sales. And then the other is sports somehow supposed to say so-and-so is a team player. Right. Now, does, does the fact that she played lacrosse as an undergraduate tell us she has those qualities? I think the answer is, you know, it's hit and miss. Um, here's, I think, the most important thing uh, to understand um, about um, uh, sales hiring. Um, and what I am about to say is as close to an established fact as anything you will ever hear from a management professor. It is supported by over 60 years of consistent research results. And I want to emphasize consistent. The correlation between the uh, evaluations that people get in their interviews and their subsequent actual on-the-job performance tends to vary between 0.2 and 0.4. In other words, even in the best of circumstances, it's less than the 50-50 rate of flipping a coin. Managers, and especially sales managers, vastly overrate their ability to predict somebody's fit and performance on the basis of interviews. Now, I have colleagues at Harvard and other places who are very familiar with, their re with that research, and their advice to companies is, therefore, don't interview. My own feeling is that only someone who's never run a business can seriously say that. Surely you interview. People have to hire people. People work with people. But if you take that data seriously, and I think you must, I mean, you're unlikely to be the exception uh, to this 70 years of consistent research. You have to augment interviews with other activities in order to figure out whether playing sports makes any damn bit of difference at all. Sales in particular is ultimately about behavior. It's not about dress for success. It's not about how well they smiled in the interview. It's about behavior. So what do you want to do there? You want to make sure that in the hiring process itself, you put in place activities that give you a sense of that behavior. Whenever possible, you want to engage in internship hiring uh, practices. Now, when I say that to companies in the current environment, they say, oh, Frank, we can't do that. It's a war for talent. I always say the same thing. Listen, you and I both know what you're going to do six months from now, nine months from now with a sales hire who doesn't work out. You can use whatever euphemism you want, but probably that person's going to get fired. Why not be upfront about the internship? And by the way, you can then put together hiring uh, packages that give you an advantage in hiring in the current environment. But again, a, a sole reliance on interviews, which is by far, you know, the, 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 the way sales hiring occurs, the data says basically you're not even flipping a coin. You're, you're, you're doing worse than flipping a coin. I, I, when I, I've run 25 startups, I used to hire um, salespeople as consultants and said, let's just see how the first 90 days goes. See if you like us. See if you feel comfortable selling it. If it's good, then we'll convert you over. If it's not, 
doesn't harm your reputation, nothing. We all just go our separate ways. Exactly what I'm talking about. And you're exactly right the way you phrase it, Mark. That is a two-way process. Nobody, not even your future boss, can really tell you what it's like to work in the organization until you work there. I think that's exactly the way to do it. And look how many people have failed. Uh, I remember the president of Yahoo brought on the head of sales for Google, and he lasted, what, six months. Uh, and they thought, oh, my God, he'll kill it. They gave him like a $25 million package uh, to come over. And within six months, they found that he wasn't the right guy in their environment selling their kind of uh, service, you know, their product services that they were offering. And they were like, my God, we just made this $25 million investment because we guaranteed all of these things. And just like you see in pro football, guys are all pro in one system and he's getting caught in the next system. Well, again, that that goes back to, um, you know, your question, your good question to me at the beginning. Why would you write this book? Sales is very context specific. You know, virtually every company I know has an experience like this. I'm sure many of our listeners do. You know, so-and-so was a star at X. We brought her in. Somehow she doesn't perform here the way she performed there. Now, step back and think about that. It's not as though when that person left that company, they suddenly got stupid or they lost their individual capabilities. Sales is context specific. When when that person leaves company A and comes to company B, all the internal relationships, sales is an organizational outcome, all those internal relationships are left behind. She has to recreate them. Part of the job of the sales manager, part of the job of the company is not to do what many companies do. Well, we hired you. Let's see how it works out. You figure it out. That's just not good. That, That doesn't make sense for shareholders. Part of the job is to accelerate that internal relationship building process that is so fundamental to effective selling in most markets. Yeah, I think he answered the next question from the audience, which is, I'd like to get clarity on something said. Profitable growth depend on organizational fill in the blank. So I, I think that you you kind of covered that with your last answer. The other thing I'm always uh, amazed at, and when I write business plans for clients, and they're looking to hire salespeople, and they always go to like some name brand you know company, let's hire somebody from Hewlett Packard or whatever. And I'll say to them, don't you want to hire somebody who's never sold something that nobody ever heard of before? You know, because if you're selling Bloomberg terminals, that sells itself. The salespeople just show up and it sells itself. Or a money manager who is in the top quartile and he's paying salespeople a percentage of the assets. Like, why would you even do that? Because when you walk in, all they're doing is saying, show me the number, and then they're being hired uh, to go and manage that person's money. The reverse is also true. No matter how great the salesperson is in terms of their people skills, if you got shitty returns, nobody wants you. Yeah, but I think, first, I agree with you. I think that is common practice. And I think there are two things going on there. One, as usual in business, something on the supply side, something on the demand side. On the supply side, the people doing the hiring say, well, let's go you know, get them from, you know, whatever is the current, um, uh, the current allegedly best practice company. 
I think what they have in mind is that they see a trade-off. I think it's a false trade-off. If you, again, if you go back to what we said earlier, but if I hire this person, the extra money I pay is money I don't have to spend on training, socialization, et cetera. That I think is false. You still, they still have to recreate things. Then on the demand side, it's not completely irrational in many industries. Let me use healthcare as an example. Healthcare is what? Now it's about 20% of our GDP. Yeah. It's extremely diverse, right? It's everything from medical equipment to drugs to services. But the vast majority of that flows through hospitals. As a result, if you have good experience selling to hospitals, understanding the buying units, navigating the halls of those bureaucracies, that's a very transferable skill across multiple healthcare categories. That is not true in a lot of industries. So, you know, there, there, as usual in business, as I said, there are reasons for this, some of which, in my opinion, don't hold water, and some of which do apply in specific contexts. A question from the audience. Is there a good AI program for sales, for example, to use online or on telephone call centers? Uh, I don't know. Uh, That's beyond my pay grade. Uh, But I would say this, um, if the program, you know, what does it mean to be a good AI program in this context? Presumably, it means the software doesn't have glitches. It's got some algorithm in it that, uh, you know, holds up. Uh, to um, uh, statistically significant testing. But that's like chapter one of war and peace in sales. The rest of the novel is about how do I use that in my market, with my products, with my pricing, with my context. Um, Peter Drucker, I hope, uh, you know, Mark, I'm sure you remember, right? Um, I I use his name now with a little uh, hesitation. I mentioned Peter Drucker to MBA students uh, last semester, and it was like I said, hey, remember Julius Caesar? Uh, But, you know, Peter Drucker was a very smart guy. He wrote an article in the 1960s. That's a long time ago, all right? The article was called The Manager and the Moron. And the moron is the computer and the software. And what Drucker pointed out is that the the software is a moron, right? The software does what you ask it to do, but what makes it very valuable is that it forces you to set the criteria. It forces you to define what it is we're trying to do. And that remains true even when we have allegedly self-correcting programs as in artificial intelligence. Managers must manage. You can't escape that. I mean, that's just the reality of business. Uh, I thought it was interesting in the book that social media, especially among people under the age of 35, have been flat overall, but shrinking, really shrinking among young people. Why is that, especially since that's a major tactic by business? Yeah. Why it's shrinking among uh, young people, I don't know. I suspect because, you know, what's cool you know, I always quote Coco Chanel. Remember the great Coco Chanel? Yeah, of course. Her definition of fashion. Uh, Coco Chanel said, by definition, fashion is what goes out of fashion. I think that's true in social media. 
What I can speak about, however, is the business issue here. And here again, the pandemic has accelerated uh, a trend, but the cost of acquiring customers through online marketing media looks like a ski slope in Aspen over the last decade. And unfortunately it's going up, not down. And this is a very, very big issue. Online marketing media are increasingly cluttered, uh, increasingly expensive, a classic example of the law of diminishing returns and very, very high maintenance. If you're gonna do that now, you've gotta stay in touch in detail. This is not an area for amateurs. You've gotta stay in touch in detail with the algorithms of multiple platforms that come and go. How many people listening to us could even spell TikTok accurately as <laughs> recently as two or three years ago? There's a joke making its way among CMOs, chief marketing officers in tech firms. And the joke is, where's the best place to bury a body? Answer page two of Amazon or Google or Facebook, because nobody goes there. You know, that's, that's where we'll probably find Jimmy Hoffa, that kind of thing. So I think that's the important issue. It is just darned expensive and getting more so to do this. That's why I say it's about a hybrid world. It is not a digital, it's physical world. Well, I mean, look at Facebook. Now that their, uh, their precision advertising is being kind of taken away from them, which people just don't realize without that, that means the cost of goods have to go up because the cost of customer acquisition goes up. And now you're going to be paying more because the promise of the internet, right? When we started was, hey, you're not going to get ads that you weren't interested in. And I appreciate the fact that I, you know, if I'm looking at backpacks now, I'm flooded with backpack ads, but hey, I'm looking for a backpack at this time. And eventually that stops when I stop looking for backpacks. I, I agree with you that, and you're exactly right, that was at the heart of the promise of online marketing. And by the way, I think I think this is only the beginning. I mean, there's lots of incentives uh, for uh, politicians and regulators to increase privacy laws, not the least of which is to shut down discourse, you know, among people they don't like to hear the discourse from. You're going to hear more and more of this, and you're right. All that does is increase what is already a very quickly accelerating cost to customer acquisition through those media. Uh, you write about the viral effect of sharing information on product is surprisingly minimal. Less than 4% uh, share more than once, which kind of surprised me when I read this stat. Why is that and how can organizations increase that number? Because that's what they're hoping for. Like Tim Draper, right? He, he was the father of talking about the viral effect. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that data uh, comes from a colleague of mine who's named Sunil Gupta, who looks at this topic in detail. And his data is based on all the, um, the major platforms uh, that we talk about. And I think you're right. I think a big part of the attraction of online marketing media for some years is this notion of virality. Now, you know how this works in tech. Tech people love to reinvent the wheel, right? We used to talk about word of mouth. Now we talk about virality. All right, give them the language. But what Sumio finds, and I think the reasons for this are the clutter that I uh, uh, talked about. There's a notion which I think is true, 
uh, the sociologists call this the megaphone effect, that what social media does is allow people who already agree with each other to speak to each other, right? That's why we have political polarization increasing. I think there's truth to that. But what Sunil's data says is that the vast majority of people are just talking to themselves. Nobody reads it. And in fact, what his data says is that it's only about 7% of these social media messages that even get read by eight people or more. The point being that going viral is the exception, not the rule. It's very, very difficult to do. And because of the increase in clutter, getting even more difficult to do. Frank, I wanna thank you so much because you must be a fabulous professor. I would love to have been in your class um, because you have such great energy and the research you've done is terrific. The book is uh, great, um, but I could have spent the rest of the day just hearing you talk about these different topics. So I hope that we'll have you on again another time uh, and maybe even talk about one of your other books as well. Everyone have a great weekend. Again, Frank, thanks for taking the time to speak with us. And uh, we look forward to staying in contact. Mark, thank you. Would love to come back. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.